I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction: you must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So we like to hear from people on the right, people on the left, people on the middle on this channel. And uh, today we're lucky that we're joined by Professor Harvey Kay uh, of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, who is professor of democracy and justice studies there. Most Americans are fi- don't want to hear the soul of America. They want to hear about trying to cover their bills, not worrying about health care. They want to hear about those kinds of things. And Biden didn't do that. He's a historian, in particular of the left. He's written books on a number of illustrious figures uh, from the left. He was a uh, first supporter and then somewhat critic of Bernie Sanders, the Democratic senator. And what we want to find out is what is the state of the left now and what happens next in this weird world? Um, can I just say one thing before we get going, Please. which I think did I say? Did I get your biography wrong? No, 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 that's okay. okay. I I have always been a supporter of Bernie Sanders. That never was in doubt. The way in which I was a critic is that I thought Bernie missed golden opportunities to transform the narrative of American political life and especially empower the broad array of people from liberals to, to radicals and socialists, and he failed to do it. So I know that everyone thinks that he did a remarkable job in transforming the agenda, especially the agenda of the Democratic Party. But the problem is both in 2015, 16, and now in 2019 and 20, he, and I'm gonna say, I'll exaggerate slightly. I'll say he utterly failed to transform the historical narrative. And what I mean by that is he ran- He lost. He lost, so the yes. Starters. Well, in fact, the losing part in 2015-16 could have been, if you like, transcended if he had begun to actually transform the narrative and, and basically enabled progressives following in the following years to, to lay claim to a kind of American tradition. I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean. 
So Bernie ran in 2015-16 and called himself a democratic socialist, and he did so again this time. Um, I think it would have been more adequate, more accurate to refer to himself as a social democrat, and that way he probably would not have had to explain himself constantly as to what he meant by democratic socialism. And then when he did explain himself in selected speeches, significant speeches, he grabbed hold of Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, and Martin Luther King. Now, Franklin Roosevelt was not a democratic socialist, and neither was Lyndon Johnson. But Franklin Roosevelt, even though he never called himself a social democrat, was clearly a social democrat. I mean, liberalism of the 1930s, as Roosevelt pursued it, was a politics of social democracy in all the characteristic ways of harnessing the powers of government to make American life freer, more equal, and more democratic, empowering workers not only with jobs in the fundamental sense of the New Deal, but also with the power to organize and rightly secure collective bargaining from their employers. So my thinking was that Bernie should clearly have laid hold of American history, that that's the thing that he never did. He, he once or twice spoke of FDR, but when he went, for example, on stage in the debates against Hillary Clinton in, in 2016, and then this time against an array of Democrats, what he should have done is he should have called into the room, if you like, the, the, the idea, spirit, or ghost, if you like, of Franklin Roosevelt. And he should have then, I'm going to be honest about it, I think he should have smacked the Democrats, because at the key moment where they said to him that Medicare for all would bankrupt the United States, he could have called FDR into the room and said, you call yourselves Democrats? You sound like the Republicans in 1935 who warned of the dangers of Social Security. You sound like the Republicans of 1960s who warned of the dangers of Medicare and Medicaid, which are for the elderly and the poor, the health care coverage. And he just didn't do it. And, and so I, I mean, I was outraged with the Democrats generally for their, their having turned their backs for 45 years on the entire FDR tradition. But Bernie should have known that most Americans yearn for just that kind of Democratic Party, and he should have really laid claim to it. I mean, I guess I have to pick you up on one point just before we start back at the beginning, which is uh, what you just said, I think, will ring a lot of bells for UK observers, because Jeremy Corbyn, after uh, he was unsuccessful uh, at the last election um, and the previous election famously said, well, we won the argument. Uh, <laughs> and that was he was kind of widely mocked for that because it's a nice thing to say we won the argument but lost the election. Um, and I guess it sort of it will it will trigger certain sort of reminiscences of a kind of purist um, part of the left that would rather be perfect and lose than compromise and win. Yeah, I mean, I can see you're a student of politics. That's all well and good. But it, but what's really significant is that you may win the next time if indeed people see themselves in historical terms and as political actors themselves. And I can tell you, it's a funny, I have to tell you this funny little story as long as I'm talking to you in Britain. In 1987, when Margaret Thatcher and the Tories walloped labor at the elections that summer, I wrote a piece, my first piece ever for The Guardian, in which, I, in which the editor titled it, Our Island Story Retold. And not real, I don't know why he thought he could title it, since I'm not myself British, but I basically said, now was the time 
in the wake of the defeat for the British to start remember the Labour Party and the left in Britain to start remembering who they are and to make every effort to remind Britons who, who they are as well. So I've always believed that the left constant, you know, it's actually been annoying as hell to see the left over and over again make remarkable appeals to the to the public, set out a great agenda to some extent a vision, but a vision that's not informed by any kind of of any kind of sense of history. And I and I'm serious about this. I really do believe that people yearn to hear and be reminded of who they are. And I think that's a major problem on the left. I would agree with that. And let's let's come back to it. To put us in the picture a bit more broadly here, um, what's your version of what happened? I mean, we had um, a kind of hard left or, or proper left that was basically out of power for decades. They didn't even have a look in. Um, they were considered kooks or at worst, kind of, you know, unpatriotic. Um, this was in the kind of post-communist era all the way through into the Clinton era, um, where they were just sort of considered ideological and that the, the new kind of third wave progressives were the way forward. And then suddenly in 2016, here in the UK, we had Jeremy Corbyn, um, well, 2015, he was the surprise victor of the Labour Party leadership. And then Sanders had that incredible primary campaign against Hillary Clinton, where he surprised everyone by how well he did and had these legions of young fans chanting his name. Why do you think it came up or came back at that moment? For a start, we have to go back to the 1970s, okay? And, and it's in the 1970s. Well, and I'll refer specifically to the United States, but there are, there are parallels, uh, which I've written about, by the way, in, in, in various places back in the 80s and in the 90s. But the, the main thing is, is that in the 1970s, which in the United States was marked by stagflation, a stagnant economy and high inflation, and there was a profit squeeze on corporations. And I can refer people to the books that I've written about this. The point is, business declared war on American labor, and as well on the host of social movements that had emerged in the 60s, because they were determined to get lower taxes, deregulation of business enterprise, basically bust the unions. The, the, the line used to be in the, in the 70s, the fastest growing enterprise is the union busting law firm. And um, so what, what we saw from really Carter forward, Carter paved the way for the Ronald Reagan New Right presidency of the 1980s. What we saw was nothing less, and I quote Ralph Miliband, the late British political scientist, nothing less than class war from above, which, by the way, was in the left and labor were utterly unprepared for the kind of on onslaught that ensued because the, they had assumed, I think, that the liberal consensus would set certain boundaries to the politics of the right and to corporate uh, ambitions. That's not the case. So now to come back to the United States, for 45 years, the Democratic Party turned its back on working people. The American working class has not seen a rise in wages, real wages, since the early 1970s. And there were polls done in, the two, in 2015. One of them was most interesting. It actually asked Americans 
What kind of change do you believe the United States requires to transcend the, the crisis that, that, that we're in the midst of? And the majority, I can't give you the exact percentage, but it was a significant majority actually said, when given the various descriptions of what kind of change was necessary, said radical change. Donald Trump targeted the capital E establishment when he ran for the president nomination in 2015-16. Bernie Sanders targeted the corporate establishment. He really never went after the Democrats who he would have to confront, and Hillary Clinton in particular, in the way he probably should have. But the fact was that the response that young people in particular, I mean, it was like more than half of people under the age of 50, I think it was, were prepared to vote for Bernie Sanders. So, so just to sort of clear up what you just said, what you see is then a kind of 45-year-long period of the interests of ordinary workers being neglected, the capture of the Democratic Party by corporate interests, and at some point, a breaking point was reached, and that happened in 2016, where suddenly there was this surge of interest for a more radical left that could actually advance the cause of working people. Yeah, I mean, the fact was that we didn't have a candidate like Bernie Sanders prior to that. Okay, they, I mean, we just didn't. And of course, the one thing I don't think you have quite as badly in Britain is the role of money in American elections and the capacity to literally control the airwaves, flood the airwaves with political advertising had really, if you like, in, inhibited and prohibited left candidates. Bernie actually broke the mold. He actually pursued campaigns in which everyday donors were the average donation, say, this t in 2015-16 for Bernie Sanders was $27. And yet he was raising vast sums of money. All of a sudden, he could get himself out there. Well, and young the people- it, It's got to be said, the fact that in the UK, we elected Jeremy Corbyn, who is such a similar character in terms of he's been around for decades, being saying the same thing. And his election took everyone by surprise just months before Bernie started sort of succeeding suggests to me that it's more of a global moment or that there are other reasons than it just being him as a particular candidate. I, would, I can imagine, I can imagine that in coming years, historians will talk about a democratic surge of this past several years. Um, I mean, again, I can use American examples. Do you mean democratic, small d or big d in that context? Small d. Yeah. Small d. Okay, small d. In leading up to 2015-16, it was the case that diverse movements had just erupted in the United States. The fight for 15, to, to secure a $15 minimum wage. The Moral Monday movement in North Carolina. Um, the the, 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 the anti-fracking, anti-pipeline movement here in the United States. Um, the Women's March was an indication in, in this time around of the degree to which young women in particular, but encouraged by older women, were prepared to start demanding a greater, a greater equality. Then we get the Occupy movement. So there was already, if you like, this emerging democratic surge. And in some ways, the Clinton campaign was a capping of that. Not, not a capping as in now we go forward. It was, a, 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 if you like, a, a repression of that kind of energy. And and, and I can tell you, Wisconsin is, is the, one of the states that gave Donald Trump the election in 2016. People were angry in this state because of net, the North American Free Trade Agreement and similar initiatives, because you will recall, well, you won't, you're probably too young to recall, but you think back to the 70s and the 80s and the smashing, not just of unions, but the smashing of industries in Britain, that's what Wisconsin 
workers were witnessing here in this state. So not surprisingly, they voted to punch in the nose the corporate and political establishments by voting for Donald Trump. What is so interesting is that to hear you talk could, could almost be a populist of the right or a populist of the left, in that you have the same narrative, which is that this excessively corporate, globalized NAFTA world was not working for ordinary people, and that it was time to kind of, as you put it, punch the nose of the establishment. Trump was saying very similar things, and there is this sort of um, connection, isn't there, between a, a kind of Bernie type of populist and a Trump kind of populist. And, and one of the things you just said there is that uh, business turned against, what, what was the phrase you used? Business turned against ordinary people or? They turned against labor right. and, the liberal cons and the liberal consensus that had prevailed since the late 1940s. You've got senators like Josh Hawley in the US, a con religious conservative saying stuff like big business hates your family and you know the, the big business has, has been allowed to forget about uh, ordinary people. What do you think of those echoes? Is that something that makes you shudder and you think, oh my God, I don't want to have anything to do with conservatives? Or do you think that's interesting and we should push more at that and look at new alignments? I think it would be tough right now, very difficult right now to create new alliances. I mean, it's a, that's the tragedy currently of the American political scene. However, and you haven't asked me this question, but I'll answer it anyhow. I've been asked on Sky News, is there anything that Biden can do to transcend this debacle, this tragedy that I've referred to? And I do think there is. And I think the lessons come out of the 1930s. When, when Franklin Roosevelt won the presidency, he, and he won handily, and then won by the biggest landslide the next time around, he also won Congress in 1934, so the Democrats had remarkable control over the American uh, public, uh, public life. What he had done is he didn't just pursue policies top down, is he engaged Americans from the bottom up and empowered Americans to literally become a part of the transformation. And I think that's the key thing. So if Biden can overcome his own neoliberal record and find a way to create, I mean, everyone knows in this country, we need massive public works projects. If there's a way to pursue those, maybe to pulling a few Republican votes to empower that kind of budgeting, then bringing together young people and, and older workers in these new vast projects that should, should include healthcare coverage, a minimum wage, uh, the right to collectively bargain. If he can do that, I think there's a chance for us in the short term and near term, I would, if not the short term, to transcend the divides. Because what people are looking for is a way, is a, there's the old expression, it comes from a poem by the great black poet Langston Hughes, to make America, America again, the America that never was, but the America that must be. And I really do think that that's the only way the Democrats Sounds can address- a little address bit like um, Trump's slogan. Well, Make America Great Again was Ronald Reagan's slogan in 1980, right. and he did a good job of plagiarizing it, and then I think he actually copyrighted it. So you, you kind of opened two um, pathways for us there, and because I'm a kind of a bear. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A simple brain, I'm going to go for the first one chronologically, which was this uh, contention that Bernie Sanders would have won in 2016. You hear this a lot. It's obviously a counterfactual. No one can prove it either way. Um, I mean, I guess the question has to be, why didn't he then? You know, you have, you have these two sort of populist figures of the right and the left. Bernie failed to win the candidacy both times, and his movement and the movement behind him is now looking, I would say, on the back foot um, as the kind of centrists have reasserted control of the Democratic Party. Meanwhile, Trump has been incredibly successful in that not only did he win the candidacy, he then won the presidency and has been president for four years. Why was Trump so much more successful than Bernie? Well, I can explain Bernie's inability to take the nomination. For a start, this requires knowing the rules of the Democratic Party. There were several hundred, you know, essentially at-large delegates who were literally pre-committed to Clinton. Okay, so it meant for a start that he would have had to line up enough delegates from the 50 states to overcome a prearranged victory, a sort of entitled victory by Clinton. So you would have the system. You would have. You think it should, the system should have been different? 
Oh, absolutely. And and there were significant efforts afterwards to make the transformations occur. And this time around, there were changes in the rules. Funny how like the people, who, people who lose always blame the system, though. That's that's a, that's no, a, way, no, no. I'm, I'm, you, you can't win if you can't win. That that's a fact. You can't win if you can't win. In other words, he ran he ran this kind of almost Don Quixote, to use the English expression, Don Quixote uh, campaign. And the, and the thing was, he scared the democratic establishment. He had done so well. The reason it's important, and the question we need to answer is, okay, there were structural things against Bernie Sanders, but as you've started by saying, he didn't run a perfect campaign. He didn't claim a kind of patriotic mantle uh, in the way that perhaps he should have done. Would you also say, um, that he should have had a better story to tell about immigration. And what about, what about the other factor, which has only grown in the four years since 2016 and probably partly explains um, the shortcomings of the Democratic campaign in 2020, is that he also got kind of taken over by this more kind of woke, uh, <laughs> these kind of yeah. more contemporary social ideas that are kind of fashionable which have nothing to do with uh, old-fashioned leftism at all. Yeah, I mean, well, I could say that. I mean, I think, for example, the question of immigration, uh, Bernie was not as far left on immigration as many people imagined him to be. They, uh, he was being portrayed a certain way. But then, but then the other thing in those, as you talk about the, the, the woke factor, is that it's quite likely that Bernie decided, well, he's going to overcome what was seen as his the old white man kind of politics of the left, and he was going to, you know, move a little bit more into the cultural politics. But that's not that. I don't believe that that's what cost him. I don't believe that at all. I think what it came down to was the fact that the Democrats, look, I mean, he was doing remarkably well. And I think the fact is that they did a very good job of realizing that the establishment that once again, as it worked for Hillary Clinton, it would work for Biden or whomever might well have been the establishment's favorite at that time. I mean, you really have to understand that it is unbelievable to those of us. I mean, I was born in 1949. I grew up in a time of, of not just a liberal consensus, a time when Democrats celebrated, even if they didn't always fully honor FDR's uh, memory and legacy. The greatest generation was arguably, for all of its faults and failings, the most progressive generation in American history. And then to imagine, as I have seen it unfold over the last 45 years or so, that the Democratic Party would become not just centrist, but probably almost an Eisenhower Republican Party. That, that think about that. I mean, that that's how far to the to the right the Republicans have been able to pull the Democrats. Well, alternatively, consider Joe Biden now compared to Joe Biden twenty years ago. Um, he looks like he will be much more protectionist than he even was four years ago. Frankly, um, you know, he is talking about. Um, prioritizing American workers and all of the rest of it. This is rhetoric that actually came from the Trump campaign. So you could argue Trump has actually pushed Joe Biden away from the kind of uh, centrist Democrats that you're so against. Yeah, well, let, let's put it this way. Um, Bernie and Trump were not dissimilar on the question of protectionism. That, that's, you were right. I think you mentioned that earlier. Uh, the other thing is that 
people on the left, especially the left, as opposed to you would think, the term progressives is a very sloppy term that we that developed in American public life to refer to the left. I mean, it includes liberals. It includes you know people further out who truly are democratic socialists, social democrats along the way. And in the wake of Bernie's withdrawal, I, I don't know if you all realize there were task forces created to bring together the Biden and the Bernie forces. And though they didn't go as far as many of us would have hoped, the platform came to be informed by these task forces. So, for example, a priority given to jobs, a priority given to public works, a priority given to the empowerment, once again, of working people. I mean, all of these things are in there now. They didn't go to Medicare for all. Now they talk about moving towards some kind of universal health care, you know, maybe with a public option for what we know of as Obamacare. I don't believe that Trump pulled Biden. I believe more likely what you found is that the Bernie forces inside of the party pushed him. Now, the campaign led to a Biden victory, but the campaign itself made some very strategic mistakes on the part of the Democrats. They seem more eager to, if you like, recruit Republican-leaning independents from what they call, you know, those middle and upper middle class suburbs to vote for Biden. But as a consequence, there was very little talk by Biden of his the need for a Democratic Congress. And as a con maybe once, you know, we could think about that, the Democrats lost seats in the House and right now are struggling, and I, you know, my own feeling is I hope we, we can do it, are struggling to try to win the runoff races in Georgia, the two Senate positions, to at least enable Biden to have a majority in the Senate with the vote of the vice president who sits as president of the Senate. So, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing is that- It's quite a tough thing. Biden it's quite tough to make the case that Biden could have fixed the failure of down ticket Democrats just by saying, hey, please vote for the down ticket Democrats. No, no, no. I mean, Sorry. I, again, I may, let me go further and say that he probably could have spoken more about what the meaning of his presidency would be besides telling people we're going to redeem the soul of America. Most Americans are uh, don't want to hear the soul of America. They want to hear about trying to cover their bills, not worrying about health care. They want to hear about those kinds of things. And Biden didn't do that. It was over and over again, running on the basis, I'm not Trump. And by the way, as a consequence as well, he didn't run against the Republicans. That's my point. You missed my point. My point was that he didn't run against the Republicans. Looks to me from the results that people were kind of into what the Republicans were offering because they did pretty well on congressional and Senate races. And some people were very put off by Trump as a presidential candidate, which is why he did less well. I mean, isn't that, I mean, isn't fact, that a fair look, conclusion from the recent results? No, it isn't. I repeat, he gave people little reason to see what his presidency might truly involve. Okay? They just, they, they didn't do that, the Democrats. Okay? I'm not telling you that it would have been a, a dramatically different outcome. And let's not forget, Biden won now already, but it must be at least 5 million votes. And this is a significant victory by a presidential candidate. The question is, why is it that he didn't win additional seats in Congress for his party? He had no coattails. So you think he would have been more successful if he'd been more left-wing, more Bernie-ish? I don't, 
he wouldn't even have had to come across Bernie-ish if he had really talked as a, he could have just been a liberal. How's that? He didn't have to go out to the social democratic hardcore. I mean, we already have Medicare and Medicaid. We already have a whole history of precedence. So he, it's not like he had to promise people Medicare for all, but he could have even spoken more effectively about moving towards universal healthcare. He avoid, and what I'm telling you is he avoided any kind of major agenda and vision. He ran as the not Donald Trump. And then, and by the way, if you, I don't know if you bothered to watch the debates, but the debates in the first case, the first case, Donald Trump lost the presidential election after, by way of the first debate. I mean, it just, it, it was all over. He could not come back in the second debate, okay? Because, because in the second debate, if he did what he then did, everyone knew he was probably on some kind of downers because he just you know, was resisting speaking up. The fact was, however, that Biden never ran as the FDR Democrat that would have won the election. I'm not even calling for anything of a radical transformation that Bernie was implying, okay? What I'm saying is that the Democrats ran a campaign that literally said, you should vote for us because we will restore sanity to American life. So how do you feel then? You have been a, a scholar of the left in politics for so many years. They had this resurgence through people like Bernie Sanders and people like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. And now it just seems to be falling away. Yes, we have AOC, there are um, uh, the, the sort of more radical um, left figures in the US scene, and they will, as they say, be lobbying the president. But realistically, it feels a lot like the kind of centrists have reestablished control. Does it depress you? Let's put it this way. It depresses me because I'm 71 and I may not be around when, when AOC gets to run for president. How's that? Okay. But more seriously, it doesn't, what depresses me right now. Well, she's 29 and that, she can run when she's 35. So I, I really, yeah, no, she, we're, we're, hoping, I, my, that, we're my, hoping that you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll be my, there for My that. students and former students say, well, you know, she can do that. I said, look, I, I, if Bernie Sanders couldn't win the nomination, that time and this time, I can assure you, however weak the Democratic establishment may become, AOC will not be running for president, period, okay? It's just not gonna happen. There are other folks who will be younger candidates. I mean, there's, I mean there, I, I'm well aware there are younger folks who represent possible avenues for the Democratic Party. I mean, folks, there's a, uh, folks like Ro Khanna, who's in Congress, uh, uh, Joe Sandberg, a, a young uh, progressive entrepreneur out in California who was going to enter the race this time and run on an anti-poverty kind of ticket. Um, there are other folks in Congress even now who may well emerge. So I'm not, I'm not pessim. By the way, I avoid optimism and pessimism. Okay, to me, you can either, you either get you. And by the way, if I lost all hope, I wouldn't even waste my time talking to you. I'd go play with my grandson somewhere. What, what do you say? If we're looking at that kind of arc, and as you say, it may be some time before another sort of really left candidate comes back to that kind of level of prominence. What do you say to the charge that people like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and their equivalents in the US, in a sense, maybe people like you, I don't know, in a sense, are more happy campaigning and resisting uh, from the sidelines than they would be governing. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, he was 
leader of the Labour Party. He was the official Her Majesty's opposition. He had a huge opportunity and he was kind of more comfortable going to protests and shaking his fist and, uh, you know, behaving like he had for the past 30 years. And I just wonder what you say to that, that actually that whole group of, of kind of leftists really don't want to, they don't want power because it would involve too much compromise and it wouldn't, it would make them feel dirty. By the way, I'm not one of those. Okay. <laughs> I'm not one of those. But I, but, I, but I have a lot of friends who are. And I, would, and I do worry about the left's failure to see a pathway forward in compromise within the, de with the, de within the Democratic Party. Okay. Now, I, I, I do worry because it's as if I can already see, you, I can already hear it. So, for example, in the immediate aftermath of the Biden victory, my argument was on a number of shows is that if, 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 the, if I were in any fashion a leader of the left, I would immediately try to create some kind of broad progressive coalition that was not going to do, immediately declare war on Biden or do battle with the centrist Democrats, but rather make it clear who our friends are in Congress and that we would do everything in our power to strengthen their voices in Congress. Because I knew that th this hold over Congress one way or the other was going to be close. And the most effective thing we can do is to empower the likes of a coalition involving Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Markey of Massachusetts, Merkley of Oregon. There is a cohort, Sherrod Brown of Ohio. There's a cohort of Democratic senators who are a progressive force. And what we need to do is, and is to it, let them know that they need to become some kind of coalition in Congress in order not just in the short term, perhaps, to win some kind of legislative victories and shape legislation in some way, but also to encourage younger people to know that politics continue to matter. So, and, and, I, and I can tell you that having said that, I was, I was gone after by a number of people on the left that I was somehow so, you know, so willing to work with the Biden folks. And that's not even what I said. Just the very idea that I said, instead of declaring war on Biden and going, to, going into the streets against Biden, somehow that was a sellout. Well, bullshit. All I can tell you is that I still believe the best path forward right now is to make sure that the likes of Bernie and others realize that we are behind them. I'm getting little flashes of hope from you that actually maybe all is not lost for you and possibly there might even be some interesting realignments in the future. Am I wrong to have that little tiny dose of optimism? I don't know if it's genetic in me, but yeah, yes, okay. So I don't know how immediate those alliances can be formed, but if Sherrod Brown has found someone to, to, to work with among Republicans regarding the needs of families to address literally a working class America that has not seen a rise in its real wages since the early 70s, that's a great start. And I also believe, and I, as I said a little while ago, that the left, broadly speaking, liberals, radicals, progressive socials, whatever you want to call them, you know, fighting liberals, to use the old term, that folks have got to see that our enemy is not necessarily the man who's going to take the, the White House. We, have, we should never be fooled by anything, but we have got to figure out a way to make ourselves a force, not necessarily of resistance, but a force to push 
as I said, the folks who are our allies and our spokespeople in Congress to advance the progressive agenda. The crisis right now in this country is 45 years in the making, then four years of intensified political nightmare, and right now a pandemic on top of it. If Biden and those who advise him cannot recognize the imperative now, whether they want to call it progressive action or radical action, if they can't recognize the imperative of moving progressively by reclaiming the FDR legacy, then, then this hope that you hear from me will dissipate quite quickly. Harvey Kay, thank you for joining us and sharing your thoughts. That was really fun. Thank you, Freddie. This was Lockdown TV, where we were investigating the state of the modern left in America and elsewhere, and what hope there may or may not be of new alignments. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.